I really want to swim in this sea. Listen, quote, the water is warm and clear. Butterfish scoot in and out between each other. I dive down to the seafloor. It is not deep, not deep, deep black blue, which would be frightening. The seabed is soft and sandy. And when I feel it with the flat of my palm, white sand billows up, sparkling gold and silver and floating like dust motes in the small swell. Prawns with long moustaches walk the water around me. And I look up and see a flock of birds so clearly my goggles fog. The sharks fly with the urgency of ice melting. There's no thrash, no gums bared and raw meat teeth, no rolling eyes and fat green blood cloud. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of July's book All the Birds Singing by Evie Wilde, published in 2013. So each month I take a book I've never read, I split it in two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Be aware, there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes, so please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So this episode is all about the second half of All the Birds Singing from chapter 15. Now there's no bad language in the podcast, but be aware that there are adult themes in the novel of sexual coercion, prostitution and violence, which I may touch upon. So just a quick recap. Something is killing Jake's sheep and she has this past in Australia where she escaped from the sheep farmer Otto. We're back on the British island and she's trying to hunt down a fixin with fox bait who she thinks has been killing her lambs. She looks over at her farmer friend's house, Don, and notices every window is lit, even in daylight. Now I'm thinking that's quite peculiar behaviour. Is he some kind of cannabis farmer on the side? Although being a farmer, he's probably got plenty of space to not grow cannabis in his home. Now, she bumps into a delinquent kid called Marcy who knows Samson. Now, Samson, remember, turned up saying that Jake was living in her father's house. According to Marcy, Samson has seen a beast. Quote, but I told him it's just the weed. So there is a drug problem and her neighbour farmer, Don, could be part of it. Or is that just a red herring? Now, we get a chapter with Jake arriving at Otto's farm in Australia for the very first time. Otto refers to his wife as, quote, ex-wife. He's a very, very creepy guy and he gives her soft toys and puts his arm around her. The narrator doesn't mention how she must be feeling in any way. I'd be running a mile from this guy. He particularly enjoys singing the opening theme tune to Shortland Street, a daytime TV program to Jake. He says he doesn't get sheep shearers in to shear his sheep because when he got strangers in, quote, things started to go bad with Carol. Now he shares a shower with her and notices her scars on her back. He says, quote, was he a customer? And she lies saying it was a, quote, bleach blonde haired man. So this Jake has quite a past. She may have been some kind of cool girl. When she's tending to the sheep on her own, she notices an earring in the back of the shed, quote, it's a small gold heart with a teardrop of opal hanging from it. It sits in my palm like a dead beetle. I put it back where I found it and cycle back to the house to make Otto his lunch. So this is the earring she saw in the wedding photo. Surely this is Carol's earring. She questions him about Carol later, but he's reticent, although he says she left a year ago. Quote, 
I want to ask more questions, but I can't figure out how to get away with it. I want to know what she looked like, how tall, the kind of woman to wear earrings on a sheep farm. What kind of woman is that? Now, call me cynical, but the fact that the narrator is reinforcing the idea that these are Carol's earrings makes me think that there might be more to these earrings than at first appears. Perhaps they were Carol's earrings, but have been passed to a string of other women. She thinks of her recent past in Australia, quote, I first arrived in Port Hedland with the pizza parlour bed and breakfast you could pay $10 to work out of. How the owner called us jobless sluts, giving her restaurant a bad name. So it makes sense now why she was so blasé about him in the house earlier. Maybe she has learnt how to deal with strange men in strange situations. Now back in the future, on the island, Jake is with Don. The narrator refers to the fancy kitchen lighting, so my idea that he's running a marijuana farm is wrong. Also, she would smell it. And a farmer wouldn't need to farm it in his house, of course. As I mentioned, he'd have some kind of shed or something. Now, she tells him his son Samson visited her. Don recalls how his mother, Margaret, died at 43 when he was 60. He shows a photo of Samson at four years old alongside an older Don and young Margaret. He says he hasn't been a good father to Samson. And after his son set fire to things, he pressed charges and went to young offenders prison. He thinks his son tried to burn his house down and says, quote, I saw why. And when pressed for further information, Don says in a spooky recollection that Margaret returned to the house one night, quote, I looked out the window and there she was in her dressing gown, the only clothes I took for her to the hospice. She had her back to the house, walking towards the woods, but I could see it was her. Hmm, or someone dressed in her clothing, very mysterious. And is this really the reason Samson wanted to burn down his house, to banish the ghost of his dead mother? Or is it more likely that Margaret is still alive somewhere? Don does say that it wasn't Samson that hurt her sheep, that he's a good soul. Now, back in time, we're in Australia again. We're at the point where Karen and Jake are working as prostitutes. Otto is a regular. She alludes the, quote, welts on her back. So I wonder who gave her these? Otto tells Jake that his wife left him and he wants her to help run the farm. He pays her quite handsomely and she accepts the offer. She thinks, quote, Karen will understand is what she's after herself to be out. Now, back in the UK, she spies a Merlin flying in the sky. Then Lloyd is singing as he finds a piece of meat or something in a ditch nearby. Quote, Lloyd squatted and pulled something from the hole which caught Dog's attention. He trotted over and smelled it for Lloyd, who touched Dog's head in acknowledgement. Dog returned to his business and Lloyd weighed whatever it was in his hands like a fillet of beef and then threw it to the side. He sings, quote, I wish that every kiss was never ending. A quote from the Beach Boys song, Wouldn't It Be Nice? There's definite comparisons with that weird Otto singing the theme to Shortland Street. And conjuring up images of Otto killing and burying Carol but perhaps Lloyd is the real murderer out of those two, perhaps the sheep murderer, or worse. Mm. Now, he bizarrely says he's digging a hole to sow some apple seeds. Quote, when I was a kid, I was into reincarnation. Does he want something to be reincarnated as an apple tree? He's been drinking. There's a smell of whiskey on his breath. Lloyd says that he's burying the ashes of someone special in the furthest points of Britain. Quote, he was alive in the morning and then by the afternoon he was suddenly dead. And when she asks if it was his son, he denies it. But who? A lover? A father? A pet? Maybe it is his son. Back in Australia, 
and back in time to when she arrived at Port Headland as a sex worker and how Karen and Jake get to work. Karen seems to think she is above other people and always thinks, quote, we've got a way out if we want. Jake wakes from a dream of home and Karen helps her to lock the doors on bad memories. She wants her to think of a good memory room. Jake thinks of a room underwater and, quote, something nosing at the glass and lies to Karen saying that this is a good room. What is that room? Now, back in the UK and she's walking back to the house with Lloyd, sprinkling ashes and singing from Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys. She hears a shriek and she sees an animal which she initially thinks is a cat, although the narrator doesn't say. And then a hoofed animal appears in her shed. So perhaps a deer? We then hear about how she is labelled, quote, damaged goods back in Australia by a particularly horrible customer because of the scars on her back. Then back in the UK, she calls her mum in Australia only for it to be picked up by an unrecognisable man's voice, possibly one of her brothers, one of the three triplet boys who she has grown up with. She's silent and he thinks it's someone wanting money. He says, quote, I'll get the money, okay? Message understood. Intriguing. What kind of trouble is Iris and this brother in? The sheep on her farm begin to give birth. Lloyd helps her. After this, she has a bath and hears an intruder enter her house and then leave. She hurts herself and when she wakes, quote, the water was cold and I was no longer sure how long I had been in the bath. It was not even seven when I first ran it, but the light outside was bright and all the birds were singing. Very spooky scene. Now, back in the UK, there's a knock at the door and Don is standing with Marcy and Samson saying they were going to start fires. Jake doesn't think they were going to hurt the sheep. And she adds that, quote, it wasn't a fox. So what is it? Otto? Kelly? One of her sheep gives birth to triplets but rejects one of the lambs. They take it into the house to care for it. And then back in Australia, we've got Flora Carter's memorial service. She's died in a fire and people, including Jake's father, think that Denver is responsible. And I'm thinking, wow, new characters and instance so late in the book. Personally, I'm never a massive fan of this technique, but I know other people love it. So I'm going to go with it. Things feel like they're going to click into place. If I just make a quick comparison to another couple of crime novels I've read recently, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but they are by Tukajuk and Owens. They're in previous episodes. Both of them had a big and interesting twist, but never a huge amount of new information and characters so late in the book. Anyway, she visits Denver in hospital. He's very burned. She says, quote, I'm so sorry, it's all my fault. I never thought the fire would get so out of control. If you wake up, I'll tell them it was me. So Jake is the guilty one. At least that is what we're led to believe. I'm not going to give anything away. Unfortunately, the policeman guarding Denver's hospital room overhears Jake saying this and spreads the word. Uh-oh, what are all those ramifications going to be? Well, a group of people, including Hay and Denver's family members, find her on the beach and beat her up. Another group are holding down an Andy Carter. Was he the real arsonist? Now, back to the British island. Jake hears what sounds like a dogfight and goes out and lets off her gun in a very irresponsible way at a, quote, shape taller and wider than man. Fear is the obvious motivator here. Now Lloyd helps out and allegedly finishes off a half-injured sheep that he says, quote, you shot in the neck. I don't believe that for an instant. 
By the way, how come Lloyd is still around? Easy breezy entering into Jake's life. Is she really that lonely that she just lets a complete stranger walk into her life? Especially when she has such a dark past. What do you think? Now back in Australia and the fire that is spreading through the town, she rushes to her empty home and jumps in a cold bath. Is that a well-known fire prevention technique? To get inside a building that may burn down and then jump in a bath? That could explain those welts on her back. Now back in the UK, Jake wants to examine the sheep, but Lloyd refuses to let her. What a surprise. That's because he shot something else. But who? Or is that a red herring? By the way, her dog is called Dog, capital D. I think that's the most imaginative name for an animal I've ever read in literature. Compares well with my parents who named their cat Kitty Conk. Anyway, moving on. The rescued lamb has gone missing. Now, back in Australia, we're introduced to Denver Cobby. Quote, half Aboriginal kid from the year above, who she fancies. A couple of girls pick on her for being a, quote, homo. And Flora Carter stands up for Jake and the two bullies sulk away. Quote, Narida, who's one of the bullies, mumbles sorry as she passes Flora. This Flora sounds like a quite an authority figure. Jake and Denver hang out and this enrages Narida, who, quote, loves Denver too. And she says she's going to, quote, kill Jake. Such drama. Now, Jake feels a certain amount of societal racism when thinking about Denver's parents. Quote, maybe his parents will disapprove. Maybe they'll think I'm too young or they don't want their son going out with a whitey. And she refers to her mum thinking of Aboriginal people as different when Denver appears to disappear behind a bush to take a pee and then suddenly reappear. Quote, it's what mum would call the magic of the abos. And then we hear that Denver is actually in love with Flora. Shock horror, poor Jake. But Flora's father, quote, won't let blokes near his house, especially not a black bloke. But she's really something, you know, Jake. He says my name and I turn to look at him. I think nothing. It doesn't get the chance to get in one ear hole and out the other. I don't let it in. I'm just about going crazy out here. The two of us are. We're going to take the bike and head to Cannes. Get a little place there. Ugh, racism. And poor Jake, her heart must be broken. He asks her to store some of their stuff under her bed till they escape. But Jake just says to Denver, quote, go away. Now he turns on her and threatens her to keep silent. Quote, if I find you've told anyone, you'll get a beating of your life. Whoa, pause. Now to go from the heights of love to the pits of hay, all in a matter of minutes. This is teenage melodrama to the max. I'm quite enjoying it. So maybe Jake does hurt Denver in some way. I really thought she was innocent, but perhaps not. Very intriguing to see how this will play out. And it's such a departure from sheep farming with old blokes in windswept, cold, rainy Britain. The novel soon ends. I'm not going to give you any spoilers yet, but all I will say is that we can see how Denver ended up so injured and at whose hands poor Flora died. And we also learn what that beast terrorising Jake's sheep is. And yes, she does finally get companionship. Okay, so you want to know exactly what happens? I'm going to have to give spoilers. So pause right now and skip ahead by two minutes. Have you paused? Okay. Here goes, spoiler alert. So as Jake is with Denver outside the Carter house, Denver is waiting for a tryst. Flora is on the veranda and in her drug adult state, Jake sets Flora's house on fire by dropping ash onto dry leaves near the house. I think she does set fire to the house deliberately. 
Quote, I put the red end of my joint to a leaf and it eats up with no flame, just like someone has taken the leaf out of existence, like it was never there in the first place. In my head starts a countdown, like the kind they do when a rocket is about to take off or when you're 10 seconds away from the new year. The birds are louder still or I'm stoned. I do another leaf. I take out the lighter and somehow the path is on fire and I don't know if I meant it to be. And it goes up and the birds scream, they scream at me. And before I can scream back, before the birds can take flight, it is up, sucking up the trees with the sound of ice breaking. It goes up and no amount of stamping will help. I can see that. I just watch it like I'm part of it. I'd say she's guilty. I know some of you might think she's not guilty, but I think she's pretty guilty of setting fire to Flora's house. Now, Denver runs in to rescue Flora. Back in the UK, Lloyd says he sees a beast that is, quote, huge before them. Quote, it's huge, he said in a voice that did not sound like his own. It's here. It's just here. And you see it? It's just in front of us. Something crunched in the undergrowth. Should we run? I said, that's Jake speaking, but I didn't think we would. It moved deeper into the woods and we stayed standing, watching and listening. My God, said Lloyd quietly. I looked down and saw that we were holding hands. So big question to you, listener. What is this beast? Is it their burgeoning love for each other? No. It's the guilt of Jake's past. Did she get any kind of retribution for killing Flora and maiming Denver, though? What do you think? Then the novel ends. Initial thoughts. Bit of a wishy-washy ending. What a cop-out. Who was terrorising those sheep? Was she followed all the way from Australia? What was the issue with Samson? What about her dad and the money and the brother saying that he's going to give someone money? I mean, am I missing something? And she didn't seem to get any retribution for poor Denver and Flora. So, questions. Why did Jake's dad die? Well, we don't really find out, do we? Was it just an accident at the marina or something else? And what happened at Otto's? What is the dog Kelly scratching around for? Well, we're led to believe it is Carol, but there is nothing to say that she didn't just up and leave. We were left all those interesting red herrings about the earrings being discovered, but there was never any body found. And what's with Freddy the Frog that she was given at the server and doesn't want to remember? Still am clueless to that. Quote, I save the Freddy the Frog until it melts in the glove compartment. He represents something I'm not sure I understand. Perhaps it reminds her of the fire, this Freddy melting. So the question, why is the book called All the Birds Singing? Well, that becomes quite clear and I'll talk more about that later. So we've got a few ideas about the second half. We have the idea about the birds. Now she does look up to see a Merlin hover. And finally, towards the end, the sheep on her farm begin to give birth. Lloyd helps her. And after this, she has a bath and hears an intruder enter her house and then leave. She hurts herself. And when she wakes, quote, the water was cold and I was no longer sure how long I had been in the bath. It was not even seven when I first ran it, but the light outside was bright and all the birds were singing. It seems a bit of a prosaic add-on to give a great title for her book. It certainly doesn't represent any freedom for her. If anything, the opposite, she is being stalked. Maybe that's the twisted irony of the phrase. Now, a bird nests outside her room after she's allegedly killed the sheep. Quote, sang loudly, chip, chee-chook, jay, and jay, jay, tool, tweedledee, chee-choo. It should have been me that finished her. She should have died thinking it was all going to be fine. So birdsong here representing that blasé hopefulness in the face of all tragedy, a stark contrast to Jake's inner turmoil. Then right at the end of the novel, the birds punctuate that awful moment. Quote, the birds loud and all singing at once, cook, 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 
hoo 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 hoo, woo whoop whoop whoop, quick quick quick, the birds sound faster and sharper, cheerily cheery up, cheerio cheering, chickadee dee dee, Phoebe cheer cheer cheerful, charmer turaloo, purdy turdy purdy, what what wit wit wit, oh Jake what did you do, the birds scream at me, chip chi chook j and che j notes, tool tweedle dee wheat, I think I'll leave it there, but she has been judged judged by those birds, those birds. The construction of the novel is quite interesting. There's two separate chapter paths interleaved. You've got the UK story that moves forward and the Australia story that moves backwards. And we've also got that interesting idea about not moving because you won't be seen by the human eye. It's what her father told her, quote, don't move and you won't be seen by the human eye. It's a constant message to Jake playing out in the novel. Her father tells her this over and over and she constantly thinks about it. Quote, up the beach come six or seven men and a woman. I don't move. The human eye, if I move, where will I end up? If I move, I'm guilty. What an irony that she's constantly on the move and yet she's still not being seen. Now, overall thoughts. Did I enjoy it? I guess I was hoping for more vivid description of rural beauty of Australia and UK. But hey, I think I was swayed by the novel's title, which sounded so poetic. Ultimately, I would say that because of the structure which reveals so many new characters and ideas at the end of the novel, which I'm not a fan of, and all those loose ends which I was hoping and expecting to be tied up, I would say it is somewhere between not for me and I liked it. So I'll give it three and a half stars, which means that ultimately I'll round it up to four stars. I did initially recommend the book to my English Australian friend Lucy, but this was before I finished reading it. I'm not sure she would enjoy it based on the ending. These are just some of the ideas that resonated with me and I'm sure you'll have your own standout ideas. I'd love to hear them and perhaps share them at the next episode, so please write and let me know your thoughts. I'd like to talk a little bit now about next August book, books one and two of Gargantua and Pantagruel by Rabelais, published in the 1530s. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading book one. Now, I chose this book because I'm going to be going to France at the end of the month, so I thought it'd be great to read some classic French literature in preparation for my holiday. I don't really know anything about the book or about Rabelais. I'm going to read the first page and give you some initial impressions. Chapter 1. Of the genealogy and antiquity of Gargantua. For knowledge of the Gargantua's genealogy, and of the antiquity of descent, I refer you to the great Pantagreline chronicle from which you will learn at greater length how the giants were born into this world and how from them by direct line issued Gargantua, the father of Pantagruel. Do not take it amiss, therefore, if for the moment I pass this over, though it is such an attractive subject that the more often it were gone over the better, it would please your lordships, for which fact you have the authority of Plato in this Philebus and Georgias and of Horace, who says that there are some things, and these no doubt of that kind that become more delightful with each repetition. Would to God that everyone has a certain knowledge of his genealogy from Noah's Ark to the present age. I think there are many today among the emperors, kings, dukes, princes and popes of this world whose ancestors were mere peddlers of pardons and firewood, as on the contrary there are many almshouse beggars, poor suffering wretches who are descended from the blood and lineage of great kings and emperors, which seems likely enough when we consider the amazing transferences of crowns and empires from the Assyrians to the Medes, from the Medes to the Persians, from the Persians to the Macedonians, from the Macedonians to the Romans, from the Romans to the Greeks, from the Greeks to the French. Well, a very different style of writing to E.V. Wilde seems to be a very male audience, emperors, kings, dukes, princes and popes. And 
a lot of references to previous histories and previous literatures, maybe to create the idea this is a, an actual genealogy of an actual person, Gargantua. Interestingly, it is written by, composed many years ago by Master Alco Fribas, abstractor of the quintessence. So, well, the author of this genealogy or this work is Master Alco Fribas, who lived many years ago. I like the idea of this implied author writing this tale. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. So leave a comment below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars on your episode app. Thank you. I look forward to discussing the first half of books one and two of Gargantua and Pantagruel by Rabelais at the next episode of Bookshook on the second Friday of August. That's the 25th. See you then. Thank you.